And if you've got your Bibles, would you turn with me to John 12, please? <clears throat> I started this word last week before my father got sick. So I obviously I didn't know what what lay ahead. I do believe the Lord's speaking, you know. Uh, he's speaking through his word to me, and I believe he wants to speak to you this morning. It's ironic that the Lord gave me this word, and then my father took very ill. You'll maybe understand why as I go through the message. But John 12, and, and I want us to look at these few verses and, and see, and we're going to read from verse 20 through to 26, and see what we can glean from them. But I suppose the main, the main verse that I want to zero in on will be, is verse 24, because I believe that is what the Lord has led in my heart. But I believe that... Uh, the Lord has led me to verse 24. But we'll start our reading at verse 20. And we'll get th- I want to go through some of these verses and until we get to verse 24, if you understand where I'm coming from. John 12 and verse 20. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir... Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. And we know the Lord well, bless the reading of his inspired word. You know, the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus had spread far and wide in those days. And many people were talking about Jesus and talking about the great miracles that he had done. From turning the water into wine to, 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 to raising Lazarus from the dead. His fame had gone out across the land. And many, many people wanted to see him. They wanted to see him and they wanted to hear him. In verse 20 it says that there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. And and these Greeks, obviously, they traveled from Greece. And they had come to worship at this feast. And it doesn't say which feast, but I suspect it could have been the, 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 the Passover feast. But they had obviously heard about Jesus and the great things that he was doing. And verse 21 tells us that certain Greeks came to Philip and desired him saying, Sir, sir, we would see Jesus. Sir, 
we would see Jesus. You know, I think that's, I don't know about you, but I think that's a lovely verse, is it not? Is it not? Sir, we would see Jesus. And you know, friends, that just mean, doesn't mean to say that they wanted to see him with their eyes, no. But they wanted to be in his company. They wanted to be with him. They wanted to be in his presence. They, they wanted to have conversation with him. They, they wanted to have sweet communion with him. And church, what an honorable thing to desire. What an honorable thing to desire. To see Jesus. To see Jesus. My friend, can I ask you this morning, is that your desire? Is that your desire? That you would see Jesus? That you would see, you know, Zacchaeus, he wanted to see Jesus. So he ran and climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus. But when the Lord saw him, when the Lord saw him, he says, Zacchaeus, come down for I'm going to your house to have tea. So not only did Zacchaeus see Jesus, but he met him. He had fellowship with him. And you know, from that day on, Zacchaeus' life was never, ever going to be the same again. His life was turned right around. But you know, friends, I'm not just talking about seeing Jesus with the eyes, no. But I'm talking about seeing him with our hearts. Seeing him with our hearts. Having that sweet communion with him in that place of prayer. Letting him speak to you through his word, privately and individually. Letting the word of God speak to you. Worshiping him and praising him and, and with, with thankful hearts. For you see, friends, I believe that when we as his people rightly put those things in place in our lives, then we will see him. Do you understand what I said there? Then, then we will see him. We will see him and we will hear him and we will know him individually in our lives and corporately in our lives. When we desire to see him, then I believe we'll see him in all his splendor and all his glory. And we will see supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit breaking out amongst us. But you know, the flip side to that is, if you neglect those things, if you neglect the place of prayer, if you neglect, neglect the reading of his word, if you neglect the, the, the coming together and having fellowship with other believers, and more especially, and I suppose I would be a bit dogmatic in this, about coming to the Lord's table, because I believe that's probably the most important meeting of the week, that we come to remember him. But if, if, if you neglect those things, then friends, can I tell you, you're not going to see him. You're not going to hear him. And you're not going to know him. And you know, my prayer is, my prayer is that we all, that we all would see him. Sir, sir, we would see Jesus. Is that your prayer this morning? I know it's my prayer. I want to see him. I want to know him. I, I want this touch in my life, in my heart. Sir, we would see Jesus. So Andrew and Philip, they come to Jesus and tell him that there are some Greeks here and they want to see you. But Christ answers them in verse 23 saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. But what was Jesus saying here? You know, he was telling them, not only will these Greeks see me, and those and those that are around me, not only will they see me, but listen, but listen, friend, there's an hour coming. There's an hour coming when the whole world, 
When the whole world will see the Son of Man coming in all his splendor and all his glory. You know, Revelations 1 and 7 says this. Behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye. And every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail, shall wail because of him, even so. Amen. Friends, I don't know how it's all going to happen. I don't have the answer to that. I don't know how it's all going to happen. But listen, my Bible says that every eye is going to see him. Every eye is going to see him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail, shall wail because of him. The righteous shall be glad to see him, and they shall rejoice at the sight of him. We shall be filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory when we see Jesus. But friends, hear me this morning, the wicked. The wicked will see him, and they will tremble. They will tremble. They they will be filled with fear, with consternation, with astonishment. They will not be able to bear the sight of him. They will flee for him. And they will call for the rocks on the mountains to fall upon upon them, to hide them from him who cometh. Because, friends, they will not be able, but, friends, they will not be able to hide from him who sees all things and knows all things. An unseen person in this room this morning, he sees you. You hear me this morning? He sees you, and he knows you. And friend, the hour of his return is coming very, very, very quickly. That trumpet is about to sound, and that sky is about to roll back. And the Son of Man is coming in an hour, when you think not, to judge the living and the dead. So friend, so friend, I ask you, will you be ready? Will you be ready in that hour when the Son of Man cometh? Will you be ready when he sees you? You know, ready or not, he's coming. That's something that no law in nature can stop. Ready or not, he's going to come. Jesus says in Revelation 22 and 7, the last chapter of the book, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. On down into verse 12, Jesus says again, And behold, I come quickly. And my reward is with me to give to every man according as his work shall be. And again down into verse 20, the second last verse in all of the whole Bible, he finishes it by saying, surely I come quickly. Surely I come quickly. And friends, that's a promise. And Jesus cannot cannot break a promise. Friend, he's coming. He's coming. But the question is, are you going to be caught up or are you going to be caught on? Are you going to be caught up to meet him in the air? Or are you going to be caught on in your sins? You know, the Bible says it's a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Friend, I would not like to fall into the hands of the living God, having rejected his offer of salvation over and over and over again. You know, the Bible says today, today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your heart. You know, friend, I urge you to come to him. To come to him now. Now, Even in this breaking of bread service, to come to him now. To come to him before it's too late. And backslider, the same goes for you. I urge you to get yourself right with him now. Get yourself right with him now before it's too late. May he see you clothed in robes of righteousness 
and not clothed in robes of sin. John 12 and 24 says, Verily, verily. And you know, whenever you, wherever you see Jesus saying verily, verily, it means that he's going to say something of great importance. So here in John 12 and 24, Christ has got something of great importance that he wants to say to his disciples, that he wants to say to his church, that he wants to say to you, and that he wants to say to me. And he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. You know, before I go any further in the scripture, let me read you a story. And I read this story two years ago, three years ago, could even be four years ago. I don't remember. But I read this story out to you about a few years ago anywhere. But for those of you who have never heard this story, it's a true story. It's a very true story. And it's a story of a hopeless, a hopeless situation. But God turned it around for good. It's a, to- it's a story of total sacrifice and dedication unto God. So let me, bear with me, because it's, it's a bit long. Bear with me, but let me read you this story. Back in 1921, a missionary couple named David and Ziva Flood went with their two-year-old son from Sweden to the heart of Africa to what was then called the Belgian Congo. They met up with another young Scandinavian couple, the Ericsons, and the four of them sought God for direction. In those days of much tenderness and devotion and sacrifice, they felt, the, they felt led of the Lord to set out from the main mission station and take the gospel to a remote area. This was a huge step of faith. At the village of Endelera, they were rebuffed by the chief, who would not let them enter his town for fear of alienating the local gods. The two couples opted to go up a half a mile up the slope and build their own mud huts. They prayed for a spiritual breakthrough, but there was none. Their only contact with the villagers was a young boy who was allowed to sell them chickens and eggs twice a week. Ziva Flood, a tiny woman only four foot eight inches tall, decided that if this was the only African she could talk to, she would try to lead the boy to Jesus. And in fact, she succeeded. But there were no other encouragements. Meanwhile, malaria continued to strike one member of the little band after another. In time, the Ericsons decided they had had enough suffering and left to return to the central mission station. David and Siva Flood remained near Indalera to go on alone. Then of all things, Ziva found herself pregnant in the middle of the primitive wilderness. When the time came for her to give birth, the village chief softened enough to allow a midwife to help her. A little girl was born, whom they named Inna. The delivery, however, was exhausting, and Siva Flood was already weak from bouts of malaria. The birth process was a heavy blow to her stamina. She lasted only another 17 days. Inside David Flood, something snapped in that moment. He dug a crude grave, buried his 27-year-old wife, and then took his children back down the mountain to the mission station. 
Giving his newborn daughter to the Ericsons, he snarled, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife and obviously I can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. With that, he headed for the port, rejecting not only his calling, but God himself. Within eight months, before, within eight months both the Arrogans were stricken with a mysterious malady and died within days of each other. The baby was then turned over to some American missionaries who adjusted her Swedish name to Aggie and eventually brought her back to the United States at the age of three. This family loved the little girl and were afraid that if they tried to return to Africa, some legal obstacle might separate her from from them. So they decided to stay in their home country and switch from missionary work to pastoral ministry. And that is how Aggie grew up in South Dakota. As a young woman, she attended North Central Bible College in Minneapolis. There she met and married a young man named Dewey Hurst. Years passed. The Hursts enjoyed a fruitful ministry. Aggie gave birth first to a daughter and then a son. In time, her husband became president of a Christian college in the Seattle area, and Aggie was intrigued to find so much Scandinavian heritage there. One day, a Swedish religious magazine appeared in her mailbox. She had no idea who had sent it, and of course she couldn't read the words. But as she turned the pages, all of a sudden a photo stopped her cold. There, in a primitive primitive setting, was a grave with a white cross. And on that cross were the words, Ziva Flood. Aggie jumped in her car and went straight for a college faculty member who she knew could translate the article. What does this say, she demanded. The instructor summarized the story. It was about missionaries who had come to end the long ago. The birth of a white baby, the death of the young mother, the one little African boy who had been led to Christ, and how after the whites had all left, the boy had grown up and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. The article said that gradually, gradually he won all his students to Christ. The children led their parents to Christ. Even the chief had become a Christian. Today, there were 600 Christian believers in that one village. All because of the sacrifice of David and Ziva Flood. For the Hearst 25th wedding anniversary, the college presented them with the gift of a vacation to Sweden. There, Aggie sought to find her real father. An old man now. David Flood had remarried, fathered four more children, and generally dissipated his life with alcohol. He had recently suffered a stroke. Still bitter, he had one rule in his family. Never mentioned the name of God, because God took everything from him. After an emotional reunion with her half-brothers and her half-sister, Aggie brought up the subject of seeing her father. The others hesitated. You can talk to him, they replied, even though he's very ill now. But you need to know that whenever he nears the name of God, he flies into a rage. Aggie was not to be deterred. She walked into the squalid apartment with liquor bottles 
everywhere and approached the 73-year-old man lying in a rumpled bed. Papa, she said tentatively. He turned and began to cry. In it, he said, I never meant to give you away. It's all right, Papa, she replied, taking him gently in her arms. God took care of me. The man instantly stiffened. The tears stopped. God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. He turned his face back to the wall. Aggie stroked his face and then continued undaunted. Papa, I've got a little story to tell you. And it's a true one. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you won to the Lord grew up to win the whole village to Jesus Christ. The one seed, the one seed that you planted just kept growing and growing. Today there are 600 African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He has never hated you. The old man turned back to look into his daughter's eyes. His body relaxed. He began to talk. And by the end of the afternoon, he had come back to God. He had resented for so many decades. Over the next few days, father and daughter enjoyed warm moments together. Aggie and her husband soon had to return to America. And within a few weeks, David Flood had gone into eternity. A few years later, the hearse were attending a high-level evangelism conference in London, England. When a report was given from the nation of Zaire, the former Belgian Congo, the superintendent of the National Church, representing some 110,000 baptized believers, spoke eloquently of the gospel spread in his nation. Aggie could not help going to ask him afterward if he had ever heard of David and Ziva Flood. Yes, madame. The man replied in French, his words then being translated into English. It was Eva Flood who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born. In fact, to this day, your mother's grave and her memory are honoured by all of us. He embraced her in a long, sobbing hug. Then he continued, you must come to Africa to see because your mother is the most famous person in our history. In time, that is exactly what Aggie Hurst and her husband did. They were welcomed by cheering throngs of villagers. She even met the man who had been hired by her father many years before to carry her back down the mountain in a hammock cradle. The most dramatic moment, of course, was when the pastor escorted Aggie to see her mother's white cross for herself. She knelt in the soil to pray and give thanks. Later that day in the church, 
the pastor read from John 12 and 24. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He then followed with Psalm 126 and 5. Those who sow tears will reap songs of joy. One wee woman, Aggie Flood. One wee woman, Aggie Flood, gave her life. Gave her all for the gospel. Had looked all in vain. All for nothing. But a harvest of souls. A harvest of souls was reaped from it. Except the corn of wheat fall onto the ground. And die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. You know, we have here Christ prophesying of his death. I remember a few verses before, there was that triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Christ the God-man riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And all the people went out to meet him. And they were praising him and, and, and crying, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel. Israel, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. There was much rejoicing when Christ came unto his people. They spread their coats in the way. They, they took palm trees and led them in the way and, and, and waved them and, 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 and glorified the coming of the Messiah. For you see, friends, they believed they believed that Christ had come to restore Israel nationally and politically. But you know, that wasn't the purpose of his coming. That wasn't the purpose of his coming. And when the people realized that, instead of praising him later on, and Jonathan spoke about it earlier on, they started shouting, crucify him. Crucify him, kill him, kill him. But little did the crowd know that was exactly the reason why he came. To die. To die for them. To die for us. To die for all of mankind. You know, I believe if Christ were to walk this earth again, I believe they'd crucify him again. I believe they'd want to crucify him again because of the hatred and because of the venom there is for Christ in this world today. But here in verse 24, our Lord Jesus Christ prophesies of his own death. But that death wasn't going to be final, no. For out of death, life, life would spring forth. Out of death, life would spring forth. And he compared his death to the analogy of a corn of wheat falling to the ground and dying. 1 Corinthians 15, 36 and 38 says, Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. Except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain, 
in my chance of wheat or some other grain. But God, but God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his body. And as I've said, friends, our Lord compares himself to a grain of wheat. A grain of wheat. Do you know that a grain of wheat is the only seed that being cast into the earth dies? It's the only seed out of all the seeds there is. It's the only seed that dies. You know, I've had to look this up, but, but when that corn of wheat falls into the ground, it decomposes, it rots, and it wastes away. It dies, except the germ that is in that wheat. And when that germ starts to germinate, it comes to life. It springs up from dead grain and it, which forms into a blade and then a stalk and then an ear which produces many corns or many grains of wheat. And you know, isn't it apt? Isn't it apt that our Lord should compare himself to a grain of wheat? For you see, a grain of wheat is the most choicest, the most splendid, the most excellent grain that you can get. It's the chiefest among all grains. And friends, isn't our Lord, isn't our Lord the chiefest among 10,000, among 10,000 and thousands of angels and of men? Isn't he the lily of the valley? Isn't he the sweetest rose of Sharon? He's the bright and the morning star. He is the fairest of 10,000 to our souls. And you know, it is fit that he should compare himself to that corn of wheat. For you see, when that corn of wheat dies, it brings forth much fruit. It's fruitful in the land. It's fruitful for people. It's useful for food. It's where we get our flour from. It's where we get our pasta from. It's where we get our bread from. And what is Christ? What is Christ? He's the bread of life, isn't he? He's the bread of life. He, he's our food. He's our food for this spiritual man and woman that's within us. One corn of wheat falling to the ground and dying, and it brings forth some 30, some, some 60, some 100, some 1,000. How precious, how precious is that corn of wheat? Friends, Christ, Christ is that corn of wheat. The most precious, the most valuable, the most useful corn that you can get. But how do we apply this to our lives? How do we, what, what is the spiritual application for us as believers here? Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, Neil, it brings forth much fruit. You know, Aggie Flood became that corn of wheat. She became that corn of wheat. She laid everything down for the sake of the gospel. She died alone. It looked hopeless. It looked helpless. It looked miserable. It looked as if it was all in vain. It was all for nothing. But then it brought forth much fruit. Do you get me this morning? But then it brought forth much fruit. 
You know, friends, could I say, and I know this may not be too popular in, in many churches today, but the pathway to glory, his glory, not our glory, his glory, but the pathway to glory is through death. It's through death. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about the death of our own lives where we die and we go straight to glory. But friends, I'm talking about a death to ourselves. A death to ourselves. A death to who we are as a person. You know, Jesus said, he who loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Friends, faith in Jesus involves a personal commitment to follow him. To keep his teaching and to be where he is. He calls us. He calls you and I to be servants. To be servants. To serve him. Let, let me put it to you like, like this. We are to take the role of a waiter at his table. At his table. And do his bidding. No matter what the demand or how lowly the status. No, that's what it, that, that is what it means to be a Christian. To be a disciple of Jesus. To serve to serve and to give our all for him. You know, Jesus says we are to take up our cross and to follow him. And friends, you know what that means? It means death. It means shame. It means ridicule. It means rejection. It means denial. When we as believers take up our cross and follow Jesus, then we deny ourselves. We die to everything that's within us. It's a crucifying of our own sinful desires. And I know that is not a popular thing to talk about today. But it's the word of God. Paul explains it this way in Romans 6 and 6. Knowing this, that old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Henceforth, we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. You know, friends, if you're a true believer, then you've died to sins. You've died to sin. You've died to those sinful desires within you, the lusts, the passions, the pride, all those things that that old Adamic nature then we'll have to die. We'll have to die. You know, friends, the way of death is hard. The way of death is hard. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 7 and 14, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad, and, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go, go therein. Because straight is the gate and narrow. That's not my words, but these are the words of Jesus. And narrow is the way 
which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. It's hard to die. It's hard to die. It's hard to walk that narrow way. It's hard to hate your life in this world. Friends, it's hard to follow Jesus on the road that leads to the cross. For the cross speaks of death. It's hard. It's hard. But you know, church, the way of the cross, the way of death can also be glorious. It can also be glorious. And the glory compensates for the hardness of it all. Yes, the seed must die. The seed must die. But if it dies, what happens? It bears much fruit. It bears much fruit. The death is not in vain. It is significant. It bears fruit. Christ died over 2,000 years ago, but he's still bearing fruit from it today. And we're part of that fruit. Amen? We're part of that fruit. And friends, when we die to everything that's not of God within us, then can I tell you, life will spring forth. Life will spring forth. And from that life, we will bear much fruit. Much fruit. You know, you may not see the hundreds or thousands getting saved, but you can make an effect on that world that is around you. On your home in your workplace, in your schoolhouse, out in those streets, wherever you are, friends, life can spring forth from death. You know, the Apostle Paul, probably the greatest missionary ever, he died to everything that was within him. And he turned the world upside down for God. You know, as I come to a close, and it's ironic because Jonathan spoke about it round the table. I didn't, I hadn't a clue what he was going to say. I didn't know. But as I come to a close, I want to, I want you to go with me for a moment to a hill called Calvary. And there on that hill stand three crosses. On each side of the cross hangs two thieves. But on that center cross hangs the Son of God. One that came from the very splendor of glory. He was born to die. He was born to die. He would die so that we might live. On his head was a crown of thorns. Blood ran down his face from the piercing thorns made into the brow of his head. On each hand and each foot there were nails that had been driven right through, nailing them to the wood. And his side was an open was an open wound where a spear had been thrust into it. From his side blood flowed out. The flesh in his black on his back was ripped apart as he endured a whipping before being put in that cross. The Bible tells us that he was marred, that he was marred more than any man. Yet this outward body of pain and suffering and death would within ours bring life. 
the death would bring life. Life for all of mankind. Isaiah tells it so clearly. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. The fruit that came from that one act is you and me. As you and me who sit here this morning, having surrendered, surrendered these lives to him. You know the wee song says, he left the splendor of heaven, knowing his destiny on a lonely hill on Golgotha. There he laid down his life for me. The value of your soul and mine was the death, was the death of the Son of God. And all he asks of us is that we would lay down our lives for the salvation of others around us. That we can say, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. The life that I live in the body, I live by faith by the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. You know, friends, as I stood at my father's bedside last night, where was Patricia, myself, and Timothy. My two brothers were there. They left. I think they knew what was going to happen. <laughs> they got offside because that's what they normally do. But as I stood at that bedside last night, you know, I would have laid down my life over and over and over again for my dad. I would have. Just to see him saved. To see him saved. Friends, this is the reality. This is the brevity. The brevity that is fixed between heaven and hell. You know, looking at him in that, lying in that hospital bed, I just wanted to cry to God for him. But friends, this was the crux of it all. Nothing else mattered in those minutes that we spent around that bed. Timothy shared the love and the mercy of God to him. And he really did. And my father said, let me think about it. Let me talk to Helen. That's my mom. You know, friends, it's only the Spirit of God that's going to quicken him. It's only the Spirit of God that's going to quicken him and bring him to the Lord. I pray that the Lord will speak to him. I pray that the Lord will heal him and raise him up from a deathbed and that he would bear much fruit. Amen. Amen. No wonder could we stand this morning. Jonathan and Jeff could become.